Hello, hello everyone, and welcome to the most card-heavy game dev podcast in the world, in the House of Games. I'm your player to the right, and sitting right in front of me is the dealer himself, Odo. But there is more. I place a card with only plus five in marketing on the table, while looking to my left, where I'm met by a cold, pixelated gaze from another not-so-impressed player, Mr. Matthias. The two of us get into a fight, but as always, the House of Cards win the game and bring us together to this week's episode of House of Games, where we will make up and become friends, maybe. Stick until the end and you will find out in House of Games. Ah, House of Cards. Ah, shit, what is it? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Welcome everyone to this week's episode of House of Games and as usual we have a special guest with us and I think without further ado I'll let you introduce yourself. So Matthias, take the word and tell us who are you and what do you do? Thank you and hello. My name is Matthias and I actually split my time between being a games marketer, co-running a co-development studio and also being a producer on extreme part-time. Hmm. Cool. And just give us a elevator pitch of the different things you do. Well, what do they involve and, you know, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So for, for the games marketing, usually what ends up on my plate is solving a go-to-market strategy for a client. How we're going to get there in broad strokes. Also influencer marketing, big passion of mine because I spend way too much time on Twitch when I'm not at work. For the co-development studio, I'm more of a messenger boy, trying to make sure we have agreements in place, invoicing is working, and we're not running late on any milestones. I don't do any actual hard labor there. And similar to that, also the part-time, super part-time producing, I should say, is are we on budget? Are we on schedule? Is everything going well? Or do you need something from me? Usually my go-to questions. Is producer, is that what they do? I always sort of thought I wanted to be a producer. I thought that was just like the guy who walks into an office and have a bunch of ideas and other people do it. Not in my experience. Well, I don't do much myself. I do try to enable the people who have the skills. I'm actually coming from an IT background, so I don't know how to do any coding. I don't know how to do anything graphical. I I don't know how to do anything other than make sure that the people who know what to do are, are able to do it. So clearing their schedules, make sure that we have enough funding to go around and that we keep our commitments. This is really interesting. I know this is your super part-time job and I sort of got sucked into it now, but I have one more question about that before we, we go to your other two jobs. Yep. If you don't know coding and you don't know art and all this stuff, how can you tell how much time people need? Because one of the things I noticed, I go to these indie dev meetups once a month here in, in Tokyo, and I hear from others that like, the worst thing is to have like, I guess it's not a producer then, maybe a director who doesn't know anything about how to make games. So it's sort of like they walk into a room and go like, I need a dragon that is big like the Eiffel Tower and then they leave because they have no clue what that actually means and then they come back a week later where's my fucking dragon and they're like well based on your requirements we have only made a foot of the dragon like we need more time so how do you sort of balance that if you don't know like coding and all that stuff I guess you have experience but 
Yeah, well, I'm also really good at asking stupid questions. So usually I end, I end up in between the people who are going to make the dragon in this case and whoever asked for it. So then it's kind of my job to figure out like how much resources do we need to actually make this dragon and then try to mediate it when the the reality doesn't match the vision. So like maybe you can have a, a pocket sized dragon in this time. Usually I try to tell them you can have it fast, cheap or good. Two out of three you can pick and whichever you don't pick out of the three is gonna be what is the drawback ah interesting cool and what are you producing currently i'm a super part-time producer for a game called vessels of decay which is a game from uh, inside the the raw punks collective and i'm also a super part-time producer for a mobile auto runner that we're doing in a collaboration with the huya the the yellevare pop duo Ooh. The Epa Dunk, dunk uh, guys. Yes, Skogsrave. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. And I think that also sort of brings us into another question that I've sort of seen around the stuff that you post and the, your sort of click or what you would call it. So the Aurora Punk Collective, what is that exactly? Yeah, the Aurora Punk Collective started out heavily inspired by the the punk rock scene, I believe, where a lot of bands would gather. And and if you had, for example, you were missing a drummer on that day, you could borrow a drummer from another band so you could get through the gig. So our founder, Robert Beckström, put this together as a, a way to, I guess, minimize the risk for indies. So instead of being separate studios, they would ally under one roof, share the risk, share the reward, and, and also share knowledge and skills. It sounds somewhat similar to what House of Games is trying to do. Not this podcast, but like the we started this podcast under this hub thing in Umeå, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The expression, yeah. So exactly, it sounds a bit of like the stuff we've been talking about a bit that you should have like a sort of a imagine that you're a really good programmer, but you're an indie, but you can't do music, for example, then you should just borrow, you know, a couple of hours here and then you can give that back to a musician who can't program, for example, something like that. So cool. So how how does that work and how do does one join that collective or... Yeah, there is a a join process for it. You apply to Aurora Punks. I think it's hello at aurorapunks.com. You you send in like a a deck with who you are, what you want to do, why you want to do it. They will look at it internally. And if it seems like there's a match, then there's going to be a ton of meetings, a ton of back and forth. And then I think right now they're reorganizing it a bit. So they don't take ownership of the studios in the way that they have been doing. Forward, they're looking at project funding more than than actually taking everybody in-house because it's as the collective grows, there's a lot of wills and there's a lot of projects to maintain. And sometimes it's just easier to have a project agreement rather than employments for everybody and ownership of the studio. Interesting. And what would be the requirements then going forward to join this collective? I think... 
they always look at like is the game is is this going to be a good game is it going to be profitable is there a win-win in it because otherwise it's hard to motivate like why do we fund this or co-fund this or pour resources into it and also do do our visions align do we want the same thing i know the the collective management they they used to talk about the five-year plan for the teams rather than the games because it's very rare that the first game you make is the best game you'll ever make it's more like these people are gonna make a really good game down the line if they get enough security to be able to to focus let's let's hope that's true that we get make better and better games so i so this collective thing is that the same thing as you you mentioned three jobs you were doing one was the super rare one and then you had the collective thing is that one and the third one was more, more. Yeah, that, for for the collective, that's where I am a producer, but that's also a customer to Cold Pixel when it comes to marketing. So I do help market all of their titles as well, and the the co development studio that I help run is joint venture between Akino here in Umeå and Aurora Punks. So that's where they do co development and consultancies for for other game studios. Cool. Yeah, since I'm such an idiot and can't really grasp things unless I'm in the center of it. If I were to ask you guys to promote my games, would I have to try to join the collective or could I just do it one-on-one? Or is it always like you get a part of the community where we share the risk and share the reward? Or is it more like you could just pay in to get your expertise to promote something? Yeah, so this is actually why I believe BB created Cold Pixel to be able to take on clients outside the collective as well. Because ah. sometimes people don't want to, for example, give away their studio in exchange for co-ownership in Aurora Punks and a lower risk. They're like, I'm so confident in my product. All I need is help marketing because I don't like that stuff or I don't have time for that stuff or I don't have the budget left for that stuff. So for pure marketing, Cold Pixel would be the the firm to to approach because they do or we do everything from revenue share deals where we fund the marketing for the project and then we recoup our expenses once the game is released and there's a, a revenue stream to like hourly gigs so anywhere from from there we also do like retainer deals where we take a, a set cost every month for for a set time of for an agreement interesting cool and so I was just curious about the Aurora Punks thing again. So that the way that works is that you sort of sort of merge your company with the collective. So they own a part of your company and then you own a part of the collective. Yeah. So so what happens is usually the studio gets absorbed. So you give up your company or that merges with the Aurora Punks umbrella and instead you get shares in Aurora Punks to the evaluation of your company versus Aurora Punks. So you get you re- get to mitigate the risk, but you get less of the reward. If you create the next Among Us, you're probably going to feel like, shoot, I should have done this on my own. <laughs> but on the other hand, if your fifth game, for example, is the game that makes it big, you probably wouldn't have gotten there on your own unless you could find funding for the other four projects first. Right, right. So it definitely has downsides if you were to make it really big, but so few studios do, and and very rarely on the first game. So I think the upside outweighs the downsides. Hmm. Have you guys ever worked with one who who 
sort of regret it after the fact? There have been some studios that have left the collective, but not due to being like a monster hit, more like the envision, the vision that they had weren't as aligned as they, they previously thought, and then they just parted ways instead. What is the requirement to join the collective? You said that it's like, if it's a great game, you guys want to bring it on board, but do you, you, do you guys also have some, I don't know, requirements or it can't be this type of game or we prefer to promote these types of games and so on. Not that I, not to my knowledge that there is, but it's also like the game, the field is changing so quickly. So maybe we wouldn't do another side-scrolling roguelike right now if we have one, for example. But it's more of a, a studio match. Like, do these people feel like a good fit for the collective? And can we make our money back from the game? Of course, both of those are very important because it, it, at the end of the day, it is a business too. It's not charity. And how many studios are in the collective or teams or whatever you call it? I think right now there's four and we recently parted ways with the the largest or second largest one due to i think a budget constraint like there was they were in between projects the the previous projects didn't really sell and and there was like a a misalignment in what to do next because a requirement also to be in the collective is if you're in between projects and you don't have a new project greenlit you're expected to help out on other projects or do work for hire or help the the community have funds so i think it was expiration ran out on the relationship <laughs> but how does that mean like let's say if i join the collective and then halfway through the development of my next game i'm like you know what I think I can do better on my own so I don't have to share the risk and reward with the collective. Could I move from that to the cold pixel part only or could I tap out completely and just do it myself? And what does the contract mean? Like cuz it sounds like they could just leave. That's a good question. It's it's probably above my yeah, no, there are contracts in place. So the the disengaging from the collective is pretty... It, it, it's not done in an afternoon. There's contracts back and forth. I'm guessing there's lawyers in there too. But both parties need to like negotiate in good faith because there's such a small pond making games. So burning a bridge is not very good for the long term for either party. And it hasn't happened that frequently. I, I hope I've, I don't sell it as it's it's just a matter of staying here, getting getting to develop and be safe and then you leave because it is uh, it needs to be a shared vision to work together for a long time. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Very cool. And so do you want to tell us about the marketing part? So say that we have a, a studio, Runic Codes, for example. He wants to market his games and the goal is as many sold games as possible. Like from the beginning, from the first point of contact to wherever it ends, so to speak. How does that process go? Yeah, usually we, we start out with a just a... a easy meeting where we just introduce ourselves and we take a look at the game. We play all the games that we consider working with because if we don't like them, it's going to be very hard to market it genuinely. And luckily, most games 
have an appeal and we can see it and feel it when we play it so already there we get like ideas like how would we use the the selling points for this game how can we use that in the marketing is this more of an esport title is this streamable is it is this something we should market on reddit or how do we get people to discover this game like what what's the hook of the game and who likes that and where do we talk to them and then after that step, if we still are are on the right path, we start looking at what's the budget for this. Is this a title that we could consider funding if they don't have the funds, for example? Or what services that we provide? Because we provide everything from making a trailer to writing a, a song for the game to taking over social media, community building, ads, getting streamers... Any anything you would expect from a marketing department called Pixel can do. And then the price varies if you want to keep 90% of that for yourself. You just want, I want someone to handle my Twitter, Discord and find me some streamers. Then the price is lower. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds really expensive, like taking care of all of that. You said that what's, like you're trying to find, like when you play a game, like what's the hook of the game and how can we reach the people? Do you feel like you have all corners of the market covered like would there be a game that you feel like you wouldn't be able to promote because of your followings and all that doesn't really align with that type of game some some genres i think are harder than others not only due to our experience with it it's just that Puzzle games, I think, can be very challenging because we like to use influencers or streamers or show people playing the game to really convey, like, what's the game about? Why is this fun? And once you've seen how to solve a puzzle game, the magic is kind of gone. And then it's it's harder to keep people interested without showing. And then when you show too much, you can't really convey the, that they should buy the game. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Like one of my games, there's a YouTuber who made videos about my Red Colony series. And I think that some of them have like over 100,000 views, if not more. But it's like, it doesn't translate to sales at all. It's just, he just spoiled the whole game. It's, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm upset or anything about it. Because I, I sort of became a fan of him because it was just so much fun to watch someone play my game and... He sort of got it, what what I was going for. So he was laughing along and all that stuff. But my point is, like, it doesn't seem to translate to sales, depending on the game, I, I guess. Yeah, genre is a lot. Also, there's visual novels, where it's like the story is the main thing. And if there's not different endings or the story branches off, so depending on what you choose, other options appear. If it, if it doesn't have that, it's the same thing. You give away too much, and now people might not buy it because of that. Yeah, I had different endings in my games, but they're sort of playable graphic novels is sort of how I promoted it here in Japan. But they always have like two endings. So my hope was when I saw this guy in particular playing my games is that, oh, maybe people are interested to find out what the other ending is. Yeah. But it was not something I had in mind when I made a game. Like, oh, I hope some influencer will play this and sort of make people interested and then they go out and buy the game. It was not really like that, but uh, yes, you're right. If it's different endings and all that stuff, people might be interested to pick up the game to give it a go on their own. 
Yeah. There's also, I guess, the really scary games or the really hard games might also end up in a category where you rather watch someone else play than play mm. yourself. Also very hard to market because you can get a lot of views because everybody wants to watch someone else play. But if it's a, a revenue share deal, for example, where we need a lot of sales, probably not going to happen through influencer marketing, which is my favorite kind of marketing. So. I was going to say, like, I think I mentioned before, but sometimes I watch these, I guess it's on Twitter, like an ad, and then there's like a puzzle-ish game. And whoever is playing really fucking sucks to the point where I get annoyed and download the game, just show him how it's done. Even though he's not there to see me, you know, solve the puzzle. But I was wondering, like, surely that must be on purpose, that you, you sort of play it like crap just to make people... Yeah, but then these games, unfortunately, on on cell phones are... Uh, I, uh, did I say cell phone? Uh, sounds so old, but yeah, they, surely they are... Uh, I mean, they are always packed with these ads, so I never end up reaching whatever level that person was at. I, I you know, I quit playing after five minutes because it's just some ad, and then I give up. But yeah, you're telling me that it's, it's true, it's a trap. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the genius, yeah, evil marketing genius. I, I think a problem also is that sometimes the ad doesn't resemble the game at all. So once you download it, it's nothing like the ad that you, you saw. And that's like a, a cardinal sin. I feel like every footage and, and marketing stunt that we use should give you a feel of what is the game. It should, it should reflect the tone and voice of the developer and the game. And it should be representative of the game. So what you see is what you get, kind of. Because otherwise, if expectancy... It's weird that they're allowed to, though. Like Because now that you say it, like I never reached that level. Let's say I made it to level five but now that i think about it like i don't even think the game even looked anywhere near that ad yeah so you're right it's not even in the game so how is that even allowed is wouldn't that be some sort of false advertising or something like that i wouldn't be surprised if they get flagged for that and they just make a new account and do it because obviously it is working and if it doesn't have to resemble the game that you market you could just use the same footage over and over so it's like yeah evil marketing trap i would say for that because mm. i think the the crucial thing about being into games marketing is we need to talk with the developer's voice when we do this as a contractor so that we maybe someone is going to see through that hey you're a marketer Matthias you didn't make the game don't talk about it as our game but it should be the proper voice it should be what you expect from this type of game if it's a happy cozy game it, sh it should be reflected in the language and if it's a horror game that should also be reflected in in the the communications around the game and it should also be setting your expectations so that what you expect to buy is what you get when you download and play the game. Because otherwise, if you're going to leave a review, it's going to be a negative one. And we don't want that. I have one more question about that. You want to be the developer's voice. Because I had a guy helping me out with promoting the Red Colony games. He was getting into marketing, so he sort of did it for free. But it was... Because we sort of befriended each other quite well. He actually visited me like two weeks ago here in Tokyo. But he he would sometimes ask me, like if someone asked a question and he didn't know the answer, he would then ask me and then I replied to him and he keep, like he gave the reply to that person. And as someone who don't like to be online and I hate, like what you do for a living is like my biggest nightmare. I don't want to deal with any of that. So, but because 
I guess he didn't know enough about the game. He wasn't able to answer all the questions. So I felt like I was still doing this shit that I really don't want to do. Or like, oh, can you provide me with like some screenshots? Or can you make like a, I don't know, happy Easter picture? And it's like, oh man, now I'm doing all the things that I really don't want to do. So I'm curious, like, let's say I would work with you guys. Would you, how much stuff do I have to provide? Like, can I just completely ignore you guys and just keep on working on the game? <laughs> on the game? Or would I, would we have to be back and forth a lot during the process of everything? We recommend, even if, if some customers, they really, just like you, they want to like, take this, I just want to make games, you take care of this. We still want to like get the aim correct. So what we could do, for example, when we know that you don't want to do this, is that we, we write up like, this is what I was going to reply. Is this okay or should this be altered? Or this is what we would post for the Christmas special. Does this resonate with you or does this feel like I would never in a million years want this associated with my game? So it we have quite different developers that we work with some of them they want to still they just want us as a reinforcement so they take the the responsibility to write it and we reinforce it and we be like the megaphone and like extend the message and post it everywhere some want us to just autonomously create stuff and some want us to create it and then they get to iterate and accept or reject it and we're fine either way because we usually invoice by the hour anyway so it's it's okay for us either way as long as the end result is good and sometimes it's they they use up all their creativeness in creating the game and, and doing all the story and coming up with skills or what puzzles or what have you. So the social media side just blanks until they see something that we suggest. And we're like, this is what we were going to post. And they're like, yeah, yeah, this is really funny, but it would be even better if. And then they, they get kind of inspired and want to be part of it. So best case for us is to have it as a back and forth and, and dialogue. But we also have clients where we just report, this is what we do, uh, and this is how it went. Mm, interesting. Cool. And as between the, I don't know if it, this expression works in English, but between the thumb and index finger, <laughs> like on a <laughs> sort of a, like a, what would you say, it's sort of a helicopter view. So what would it cost to market a game would you say or is there a ballpark figure i guess you say something like that like or how revenue share works so like if you if you give a ballpark figure like it you have to have this sort of sales to be able to market it or you have to have you know something like that yeah that one is the trickiest so i guess i'll save that one for last like if you wanted an hourly rate and you know exactly what you want, for example, we want help with social media. We want you to make our Discord feel alive, like do some raffles, get some merchandise out there. Then I know exactly how it's gonna much is gonna cost me, and I know how many hours roughly that's gonna gonna be. So I could tell you like fifty five dollars an hour. We're gonna spend eight hours a month on this, and you can increase or decrease as you see fit. Then it's like easy. If it's like a, a monthly thing. It's then it's roughly the same, but usually more work. So let's say I could give you a a price could range between two thousand and five thousand dollars per month, depending on if you want very much engagement. You want like three social po- media posts a week on every channel that you have. You want Discord competitions. You want streamers, and you want us to make a go-to-market strategy and and have meetings with you every week on how that's going. 
that's gonna be more expensive. And for revenue share, then we get into the the heavy calculation because then we have to look at the marketability of your game, the price point of your game, and then we have to make like a, an estimation like how many copies do we think that this game is gonna sell? How much are we gonna have to invest in the marketing to get there? And then we come up with like a percentage for, from that to make it feel fair. But what we do at Cold Pixel is we we make sure that we can give all our, our price estimations with a straight face and make sure that it feels fair. And also we try to always charge a lot less than the publishers do because usually they have pretty harsh contracts. So we always want to leave some of the revenue for the, the developer as well. Interesting. I was going to say, if I had a publisher and they gave me a budget to promote my game because they don't do it, I, like I would, let's say I go to you. Has that ever happened that someone has a publisher and he and he got a bunch of money to promote the game and then he just hire you guys to do it for him? Yeah, that has happened. We have had people get, for example, marketing grants or they get like a, a big bunch of money and then they approach us and say like, how would you help us spend this in the best way? So we help them with a, a budget proposal and and help them promote the game up until launch, for example. We've also had a few games that we have helped with marketing and with the pitches for publishers that have elected to have us stay on with the idea that we already know the product, we already have marketing things, activities running. So it's easier to just pay us instead of having the developer pay us, they pay us. And and then we, we stay on for up until launch or a set point where there's a cutoff. So you you pitch the game for the developer? Yeah, sometimes we do. Because developers don't really like marketing or pitching or, or sales. Some of them even... I guess the more you consider it art, the, the harder it is to see it as a commercial product. And that's where we can come in and help too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was just... Something that I think, at least for me, that it would be nice to have sort of a definition of is a go-to-market strategy. What exactly is that? Yeah, so that is, for me at least, I don't know if there is an of- official definition, that's everything we're going to do from announcing the game and start building the community up until after the game is already launched and we have like, a, this is the sales plan for you. So you start engaging the people who don't want to purchase full price. They're waiting for a sale so that you don't give away too much too soon also. I was thinking you mentioned before, like if you sort of, you can tell straight away if you want to bring the game on board or not with Cold Pixel, for example not the community thing but i assume then the game must be somewhat playable and also at that point the developer have probably already revealed the game or would you consider that not being a proper reveal like for example i revealed my current game sunset moon like a month ago but you know i have no following or nothing it's like a fart in space nothing happened from that actually i did see a, a japanese article writing about it but that's it like no one cared. So in your view, would that not be counted as a reveal of the game? So if you took care of it, would that be a, get a, make a bigger splash and would be considered more like a proper reveal? 
Yeah, we have done that in the past. Okay. Actually. So if if nobody noticed, nobody cares, who's gonna like protest that you already hey, you already revealed this. So we have done that in the past for, for certain games with different results. Sometimes we didn't manage to get that much better results either. Other games is like second time was the charm and now it got like more coverage. So to answer the question, if there's not a playable, it's gonna be very 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 early in the in the cycle where we come in we don't mind doing that in fact we like coming in early because the the big pet peeve that we have is that developers sometimes they don't want to show what they're working on and then it's like when it's too late to change anything due to feedback or or maybe this is saturated now and needs another feature it's like nope it's too late or you have the best game ever, but you haven't built a community around it. And you come to me and you're like, I launch in three weeks. What can you do? Answer is not much unless we have a lot of money to, to move this. Interestingly, you like I had my sort of early work in progress trailer for my game. And I was somewhat inspired by Odo, who talked about releasing a game very early on and people can sort of try it out. And I also had that. I can't remember if you inspired me or whatever, but I thought it would be neat to show it off early for that reason that you just mentioned, that people can come in and give feedback and stuff like that. And then I could learn things from the feedback. But then I'm also one of these donkey-brained artists who don't want to change too much of my vision because I I think in the end of the day, this is my game, my product, my, my art piece. So if you don't want this, then go and play something else. It's sort of like my mentality all the time. Like I'm making this to express my artistic vision. And I'm always sort of scared of that idea of getting... uh, You mentioned it before, like I don't want to see it as a product. But of course, reality sort of forces me to see it as a product because I can't pay my rent by telling my landlord, well, I made an artistic game, man. Like, you know, you can't do shit with that. So... I think a lot of maybe artists or developers fight with those thoughts all the time. I'm definitely doing that. I'm very defensive of what I want the game to be. And if you come with some idea that's probably going to make the game better, I will still be like, no, but that, that's not the point. That's not what you're supposed to feel or see. So I'm not sure. I, I had a question somewhere, but I, I forgot it. Yeah, I, I can spin off that unless you want to, to say something to Otto. No, no, sure, sure, go ahead. But I think there's also something good about maintaining your vision, because not only do you need your motivation to bring the, the project all the way there, but it also if you jump out of your seat and change something, whenever someone gives you a suggestion, you're never going to be finished and you're going to change the game a million times. Something that's really hard, I think, is to, I guess, weigh the feedback and be like, is this representative for the majority of the gamers that are going to play my game do all of them want multiplayer do all of them want like insta death or do they want permadeath or is this a vocal minority because that's also something you can't just alter it whenever someone gives you feedback but if you keep getting the same feedback always in 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 big numbers they're probably onto something but even if you refuse to change your game i still think it's a good idea to keep showing what you're doing because the the people that get your game and they get the vision and they want to keep track of you they they get to see your progress and you're gonna over time build 
a community of people who like exactly the stuff that you create. So if if you do this for every game, you're going to have a following, so you're going to get more and more sales organically every game because they wouldn't have found you otherwise. So even if you don't want to to alter, I would still say show 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 and build the community and even if you don't adapt, at least the people who want your product the way it is can stay connected to you. Mm. I've, I have to ask one more thing about this vocal minority. Like, how the hell do you know if it is a vocal minority or not before the fact? Because we can look back at the Hogwarts Legacy game that came out recently. Like, it was so much hate towards that game because of the the, the writer who wrote the books. But the sales doesn't translate to... I mean... Cl- in that case it feels like clearly this must have been a vocal minority because the sales didn't translate to what all the haters said about the game so how can you figure that out before the game is even out if it is a vocal minority or if it's what the minority majority wants yeah that is that is really hard and that's i'm glad i'm not in that hot seat for this game in particular but but in other situations too and i think when you're in doubt you have to trust yourself as the developer because you're the one that's gonna create this and and bring it to delivery stage and then also take the hit if it fails so if you're uncertain of course check with different sources does everybody say the same thing then it's not a minority anymore but when it's like these controversial things there is the old saying that all PR is good PR. So probably a lot of people who didn't know that this game was coming that heard of it because of this hate storm or the the threats that we should all just not buy this. Uh, and of course, the, they had pre-ordered and the pre-order numbers said that like we're going to move a lot of product. So so that also makes it easier to, to sit calm. Yeah. And on that topic, so you talked about influencer marketing being your favorite type of marketing. So how does that work exactly? Yeah, depending on budget. For some of the games where where we collaborate on a super minor budget, we do a ton of organic outreach is what we call it because we all spend way too much time on Twitch in different categories. We've worked with a lot of different games in different genres over the years. So we have some go-to streamers that we can usually approach and say, hey, we know you stream this and this of our games and you usually play this or the way that you stream would probably really fit this game that we're working with now. Would you be interested to check it out? And then we link them some materials, some keys, some Twitch overlays, stuff that they can use to spruce up the stream a little bit and then try to get them to to play the game that way. We also use different, what's it called, like sites that help us find and discover more streamers and contact them through through this. For example, Keymailer, there's Lurkit, there's IndieBoost, there's a, a ton of them out there that we all use. And there's also some paid but lower lower end on the on the money scale where we can find good streamers but we always vet them personally and make sure that they have a good setup they have a good mic they interact with the viewers when it's a slower paced game so they can fill the the silence and that they're like they have a good rig when it's an intense game or that they they play in a way that makes it interesting to watch 
And for the big budgets, we usually talk to the bigger agencies that have relationships with the bigger streamers so that we can, I guess, pass on some of the responsibility for a bit of our profit share, but then guarantee more of the big profiles that might not respond to an email from Matthias at coldpixel.com. How, like... Because at coldpixel.com, it said uh, I read it on the way home now. Something about you are the PR people for the smaller indie devs. So all the things you said, it sounds so expensive. So my question is, what is an indie game? Because when I read that, I'm thinking I'm an indie dev. But based on what all the things we have talked about so far, all of this sounds really expensive. And you mentioned something about like fifty bucks an hour or something like that. Like, yeah, uh, what is an indie dev? Like, who, who can afford this? Or is that when we sort of do this sort of share thing, like share the revenue? Mm. The, yeah, we, it depends. A lot of our clients is actually one to five person teams and they have a limited budget. But then even if we do say take 55 or $50 per hour, you're not going to pay us 40 hours per week. So it's just going to be like for a few hours every month. And then the upside is if we do, for example, ads for five other indie devs, then setting yours up is going to be a lot faster for us than for you also. So we also... Sorry, can you repeat that one? Yeah, so if we do do the same type of work for similar devs, to you, then we already have the formula and the skeleton key for it. So adapting it to you is going to be a lot faster than for you to do it. And we only charge for the effective time. So it's it's actually, even though it sounds expensive, you may gain some time, especially if you weigh in like something trial and error when you've never done it before is going to take a lot of time as well. But it is fairly common that we, especially when we believe in the the game too, and we feel like what this game needs is marketing to make it. It needs to get out there that we take a revenue share deal and then we fund the marketing and we recoup it once there's money coming into the project. So when it sounds like a publisher, like they also do that, right? They take, they spend money on it and then they recoup the money first and then... On top of that, they take like 30% of the revenue. Do you guys do that too? You take a percentage above the... Or, well, how much would that be? I assume you do that because you want to recoup the money and then make more. Yeah, but we do have like... If we have, for example, let's say we have 30% of whatever your game makes net revenue. So after all the platform takes theirs, after all the the costs have been recouped, if we get 30% and if we believe that's going to cover the work, then we don't add anything up front. Sometimes when we put in a lot of money, we do have a, a markup until we have recouped. So let's say we take... 30% and then 15% on top until we get our money back then we go back down to 30. So we do pride ourselves on being affordable. So so we always try to to find a way to make it work and we never spend 
in a stupid way too. So if we, let's say you want us to, to fund your marketing uh, and then you want some, most devs want some type of control. So we always sync with you and say, okay, we're gonna, this is the ads plan. We're gonna spend this much. And then you're like, that sounds a bit aggressive. Can we start lower? And then we of course adapt. And usually we start really low until we see like at this point in time for this game, these platforms perform the best. And we get, let's say, this many clicks per dollar. And then we would like to increase the spend until we see that it starts being less effective. So we try to be very transparent about the cost. It's not like you agree that we're, we're going to recoup our expense and then you don't get to see what we do or you don't get to have a say. You always have the final word when it comes to spending something that's going to be on your tab at the end. If it's, let's say it's our work time and, and sweat equity that we're not going to charge you, then we take more of a liberty with it. Like if Matthias wants to spend 10 hours vetting streamers, we will do that anyways, even though we don't charge extra for it. So, because it's, I had a publisher for my previous games and if I were to have a publisher and you, that would mean, for example, if I release a game on Nintendo Switch, Nintendo takes 30% and then of the remaining money, my publisher takes 30% and then you guys could potentially take 30% as well. But it sort of sounds like it's better to work with you if I self-publish. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Sometimes also the publisher gives you a marketing budget and you're like, do I have to to spend this in a certain way? And they say, no, you're free to do whatever you want with this. Then you could hire us on a, a set rate instead of a revenue share as well. So that's not uncommon. And sometimes the, the publishers also say that they're going to give you marketing and you cannot work with anybody else. So there's been times where we have helped a client and then they get signed with a publisher and then we can't work with them going forward either. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I I was just curious about the follow-up question to something you said earlier. So you talked about agencies for bigger streamers. So this is the first time I've heard about that phenomena. How does that work? Yeah, there are agencies out there that collaborate with streamers and they all have this magical tool that we never get to see on the outside that helps them sort out the best streamers for each game depending on different parameters, which I believe are price, genre, maybe like streamability scale that they assign to it. And then they talk to the streamers instead of us. And usually these people are very good but very expensive so we don't use them a lot because we feel like we can do maybe not as good because we don't only do streamers we do a lot of other things but we can do a very solid job for a lot less but sometimes Mm -hmm. the the devs we work with they either have had them collaborate on in the past or they're like nope we, we want this much money shot into streamers and this is the fastest way to do it and then we help out Right, right. And something else also that I'm really curious about. You also said that at, I don't remember which part, but you said at some point you do, maybe if it was the revenue share part, but you estimate the price point of the game. So I imagine like how much it costs to buy the game. So how do you estimate that and ensure that you can have a good price? For example, if it's too high or too low. Yeah, usually that's part of the 
go-to-market strategy. We look at the market and see like what are similar games to this? How much do they cost? Do they have similar playtime? Are they released like in the recent time or are they like ancient? To estimate like we believe that the price point should be around here. Because cheaper isn't always better. Of course, more expensive is usually not good. Okay. So is it more common that people charge too much or too little for their games, would you say? I think on Steam, people are very modest and price low. And on Switch is my my personal belief that indie games need to be a bit cheaper. Because a lot of the times the, the purchasing patterns that I see is either they charge their wallets with exactly the right amount to buy the new Zelda or they charge the wallet with like a hundred bucks. And then my game needs to fit in what's left once they buy the Zelda or Super Mario title that they want. Oh, that's smart. Really, I haven't thought about that. So I usually try to advise developers to charge a bit less for the Switch. Yeah. Especially if features aren't working the same. Let's say you use the the Steam Workshop or Steam for for multiplayer and then you just port it over to Switch and you don't replace it with anything. Then you should also lower the, the cost a bit of the game because you don't have the same features anymore. Yeah. And do you work with additional consoles as well, for example, Xbox and PlayStation or... Yeah, we we work with all, even mobile and VR as well. Cool. And does that change anything with the pricing for those platforms or are there similar patterns there? Yeah, well, there are... For for mobile, a lot of the games are free, and then you have like in-app purchases or ads to fund it, and and that's a whole different jungle. And user acquisition then changes the marketing a little bit for those platforms. And for VR, there's like there's less games to compete with, but there's also the fact that someone usually paid a lot for the console and maybe a headset that's expensive, and now the games need to be still like you have to make enough per sold copy, but you can't like charge. A million for it. <laughs> so it's it's a jungle. Mm, but it's interesting though with the VR thing. Like I think when I think about VR or I don't know even consoles in general, like these are expensive things. Like, are people really like buying these expensive things and then they're out of money completely, so they can't afford the games? Like in my head, like. If I would have to have a PlayStation 2 VR, I would imagine that I would have enough money to buy games for it as well. Or is it just how we spend money nowadays? It's just like every month we're plus minus zero, whatever you would call it. Like To me, it's so kind of weird that you spend like so much on a VR headset and then you're bitching and whining about a, a game costing 20 bucks or instead of 15. It, it's kind of weird. Yeah, you... Wanted to go on sale before you buy it. Yeah, I think that's a... Yeah, yeah. It's it's odd. The way people purchase games now, looking at just our numbers for the older titles and the new, I think we get, we get less wish lists and less sales right off the bat. And then whenever we have a sale, we, we, we see an increase in sales. But we see an even bigger increase in wish lists. And to me, that that says like I'm interested in this title, but you have to discount it more. And I think that's also a trap to do, to go too high too early with the the discount price. Because there's so many 
web pages that keep track of like, well, Matthias, you had this, your historical low was 55%. So I'm not going to buy it at 20. So I th- definitely think that you're cool and not giving away too much too soon is a good strategy for the long run. Yeah, I do have a question about that, but it's not really about marketing and all that. Like, because when my publisher has said, I don't want to put the game, like, I, I don't like the idea that people are waiting for a 90% or 99% discount for a game. I think this is sort of like a race to the bottom in the entire industry. I can see my own games, how many wish lists they have, and I assume they wait for a sale, but I'm not giving it to them. And I look at Nintendo, for example, they refuse to put their games on sale. And no one is expecting Zelda to go on sale, so you just cough up the money straight away. Like, do you do you think there is a like you you sort of said it yourself that this is kind of like a trap? But like, and now you said there are websites and stuff that like like that that keep track on it. So I suppose they know that I do put my games on like a thirty three percent sale once in a while, but it's very rare. To me, I feel like I. I don't want to do the sales because I, I I don't want people to just sit and wait on the sale. Like I obviously want you to buy the game. If you're interested in it, buy it so I can make money and then I can make more games for you. But it's like it's this beautiful dance between being the, the developer and and the gamer or whatever. Like because I also buy games on sale, so I'm not you know I'm a part of the problem. But at the same time, it's 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 weird. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. But I think you're onto something there. I think we, we as developers and marketers and, and just providers of the titles, we make it too easy on them by having sales, high sales often. Of course, with the, what's the word? Like all the titles coming out there, like there's so much competition. So if someone is going to, they're just going to wait for so long to get my game. Otherwise, they're going to get a similar game for a lower price. So it, it's also like, there's so many games, especially on Steam, coming out all the time that being on sale is one way to stand out, especially if you can get like a daily deal so you can bundle your your discount with some FOMO as well. Like it's going to be this much off, but only for today. So it, it is a, a jungle out there. And I definitely think that my recommendation is don't go too high too soon. Because once you start doing that, it's it's harder to to move units at the lower discounts. Mm. Yeah, it's quite heartbreaking when you see like a comment like, 10 bucks for this? Are you fucking kidding me? I can buy Spider-Man, like a AAA billion dollar title for $9.99. It's like, yeah, but they sold like a billion units already. Like they recouped all their money and now whatever... Sony is, I think, is too aggressive to discounting their game once in a while. Like, it's just gravy on top for them, but it's sort of ruined it for everyone else because now people are expecting me, like this tiny little indie dev who doesn't even survive on this, to to give a ninety nine percent discount. Like, how am what am I making from that? Nothing. So it, it ruins it for everyone in in a way. Yeah, it's it's really hard to compete with that, especially since 
they're not gonna go bankrupt if they don't move any extra titles from this or or games from this brand. While for us, a lot of times it ne- it needs to to tip the needle like th- on the scale. Like, do I make a sequel or do I make another game or do I take another job while I I wait for the sales to maybe kick off? And it's not as simple as just raising your original price and then having it on sale permanently because people still expect a certain playtime for a certain price too. But I think my, my best advice is to just really monitor the your niche in the in the market and make sure that you price accordingly to the other games in the same pocket and the same scope. So if your game is smaller, then then be a bit lower in price. But if you are comparable, then don't be afraid to charge for your game. Because the most amount of units you're gonna sell are gonna be during a sale once you get there. But but plan accordingly so you don't have to rush a sale so you don't do like a launch discount of 40 percent because that just seems like are you not confident in your own product interesting yeah and for the record my previous comment there this is just i mean this is capitalism it's just the way it is like these bigger companies they don't give a fuck if they crush everyone else because it's just the way it is it's just sad like i really feel like we are in some sort of the gaming landscape is really like that it's just people wait for sales or like you said people charge more for their games because they're only expecting to sell it when it's on sale so if the original price was supposed to be 10 bucks they charge 20 and then they put a 50 percent sale and then they get 10 bucks from it and then that's what they wanted to charge to begin with but no one is gonna buy it because yeah like i said it's like a this dance back and forth back and forth all the time yeah but i would say that if you are sick and tired of sales then you should do sort of stick by your principles i mean one example is factorio for example they have a no sale policy for their game they've always sold it at i don't know what it is but say 15 dollars or something and never budged on that ever and people seem to really enjoy it because they it it is a really good game and i think i mean we'll see when i actually release a game but i think some doing something like that is should be a good concept to because if people there's nothing to wait for because if you're waiting for a sale and you know from day one it's never going to happen, then you might as well just buy it or don't buy it. And that that would be better and, I guess, less headache for you as a developer as well to just have a price and then just, you know, do it or not. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, because I already had sales on my games because I do have a publisher. But like I said, I always told him, like, I don't really want to do this sales, like, all the time or whatever. So I'm not... Uh, he would always check with me though if he put the games on sale but i was thinking now that you said that i should do something like this is the final sale after this the price will never move ever again because i am in the camp of that i I don't it's not that like to me it's also a fucking headache to constantly sort of think about this like today i just came from this meeting right to a company that's gonna make music for my next game and the the manager there is like do you want to do royalties or do you want to buy all the rights and it's my friend making the music so i get it dirt chips and i said like the only way for me to do this deal is i have all the rights and i do whatever i want with it otherwise it's not gonna happen because i cannot be bothered to pay out royalties i cannot be bothered to update the contracts and all that stuff it's a one-time thing because 
yeah, I'm a developer and all I care about is making my games. I couldn't care less about all the headaches that comes outside creating the actual game. Like I'm running a company, not because I want to, because I have to, because you have to have a company at some points to get your games out. I really don't want a company. It's so much bullshit that comes with it. Just talk to my other friend in Sweden who's going to help me with the, the paperwork from now on. Because I did it last year myself. And it was just like, fuck that. And a couple of episodes I told you, Odo, that I tried to get some help from Sweden. And it's just like, you're stuck in line 40 minutes over the phone. It's just like so much bullshittery that I don't want to deal with. So when I do things, I want it to be a one-time thing and never think about it again. So what what you said there, Odo, that, that rings true to me. I like that. Like, just... Because that's what it's all about, like all the headaches that comes with uh, doing the sales and all that stuff. You, you don't want that. You just want to get your game out, hope people enjoy it, and then you keep on making the next game and hope people will come along and play that one. And something I think if you want to do a middle ground, you could do that like sort of a hard line. It costs 10 bucks, doesn't matter. And then you could do something like I think Space Engineer did something like that. At least, I don't know if they did regular sales or not, but at least they had a four pack of the game for like 25% off or something. And you could have like a, I don't know, a permanent something like that. So that means at least, you know, you get some discount, but at least then you buy four. You convince three of your friends to buy it instead. So I guess then you could, you know, feel like a, a cool guy for giving a discount but at the same time you you would be making more money than otherwise i guess huh interesting yeah yeah but then again space engineers had multiplayer so i guess that would be sort of a requirement or you would have to do you know something to to make it worthwhile buying it for three friends yeah imagine someone trying to convince three other friends to buy red colony they're like what why the f- no <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. It would be fun. It's an offline game. We sit and play on our own. That wouldn't work. <laughs> I think a really good tip that I want to, to emphasize there in what you said also, when you have someone make art or music or something for your game, make sure to pay them in a once-off to have all the future rights to it. Because the the revenue split or the, the rights can be a real headache in case your game gets super successful. Mm. Yeah, we talked about that in the meeting today. Like, Because that manager, he was very picky about those things. Like, yeah, the, the licensing and all that stuff. And then I told him, like, I'm not a businessman. Like, what would you say is the best way out of this? And he's like, well, a one-time price. And then I had to ask him, like, well, is there a price that is too low? Because that's a very professional studio. But because it's my friend who's working in the studio, and it's like a friend price. It's, uh, I mean, from this deal, I'm coming out the winner, and everyone knows it. Because I get to work with a very big studio, and I'm a nobody. But at the same time, for my friend, he is, like what you just said, is that if the game takes off, you know, his name goes out there. And he get like a month worth of salary for this, even though it's probably worth at least four months, five months of salary. And if the game became super popular, it would obviously be worth way more. But he he also know that the in quotes the risk of helping me. But yeah, it's a one time deal. I wouldn't have it another way because I, I I couldn't be bothered with all the 
the headaches that comes yeah, with it. Yeah, I definitely want to emphasize that for any aspiring devs out there listening. And also, in case the game makes it big and you become a billionaire, of course, buy him a Lambo or something as a, as a reward. But don't include that in the contract. Just make sure you have your back secure and free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the manager, he sort of said, well, if it was popular, you could probably throw in a bonus. And I was like... Yeah, and then after we left the meeting, I told my friend, like, well, that bonus is out of the contract because even if that's in the contract, that means the company takes some money anyway because everything has to go through a company. So that's obviously some cuts there. So, yeah, the liable that will be on the side. Yeah, interesting. Well, we're starting to, or we're a bit over an hour. So before we end the episode, Ruin, do you have any additional questions or anything you want to talk about? Yeah, I do have one more, if I may. Yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier on in this interview. I wanted to ask you back then, but forgot about Twitch stuff. And you said like everyone like to watch others play games. I think this is weird. I would never do that. What do you think that comes from? Like, why do people watch others? I don't know if it's just growing up with the TV, and now we have the possibility to influence it a little bit. Because we we couldn't like TV is one way communications bigger streamers is the same because they never notice you typing but the the smaller ones or the ones that interact a lot with their audience you can influence what they are doing and what you're watching and i also think a lot of people they when they have more monitors than one they want to play a game on one monitor and they want to have someone else play next to them on the other monitor so i think it's a way of, of keeping themselves company too and then on top of that, we have the games that I would never play myself, but I enjoy watching others play. When it's too scary or too hard, then I just lose my temper and I'd rather watch someone else be funny or entertaining when they do it. True. All right. So I guess then, since we are a little bit about over an hour, I think we're going to wrap up the episode but before we do that Matthias would you like to just promote anything or send our listeners anywhere just so they know where they can find you if they need to market their games or whatever it might be yeah for sure I mean if you if you are listening and you want to connect with me you find me on LinkedIn Matthias Sandström at CodePixel send me an email if you want marketing to CodePixel if you need code development help contact me at Aurora Punks instead for the code development studio and I mean stay awesome I love this field of business it's like working in a dream factory every day I get so much energy out of talking to every single game developer out there and it's incredible to me that this can in fact be a, a real job my parents always told me that gaming isn't a real job that's how I ended up in IT and I'm glad I made the switch very nice yeah great and we'll make sure to have it all in the description so nobody misses it and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us i feel like this sort of warrants uh, part two i feel feel like we could talk for three hours probably so you're most welcome back anytime on the podcast sounds great yeah and thank you rune again for being my co-host as always thank you everyone for listening and that's it folks Bye-bye. Bye.